Welcome on in to the Double Check Podcast. I am Colin. And I am Brett. And we are grateful to you for joining us, uh, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure and rate us, review us, give us five stars. Come on, man, don't be a hater. Uh, Brett, it is Sunday evening. How has your weekend been so far? Weekend's been good. I, uh, as the audience knows, have been taking graduate courses, doing my master's, and classes ended on Friday, and I've turned in a majority of my work. I only have one final exam left, so I'm feeling free right now. I'm feeling a little uh, sad today, Brett. Um, We talked about this earlier off air, uh, but uh, I'm wearing a pair of shoes right now (laughs) that is the original... KDs, the Kevin Durant shoes that after he was drafted by the Seattle Supersonics and then they moved to Oklahoma City, he came out with his uh, his Oklahoma City Thunder color uh, shoes, and I, I got them, and uh, I've been Tell wearing Tell the audience where you got them, Colin. Ross. I got them at <laughs> where Ross. Where everyone gets their KDs. Where everyone gets whatever Jordans are on the shelf for 50 bucks. Which KD would not be happy with. They would have asked him that. And you know, you, you remember when KD came out and they were like, why are your shoes $150, $160? And he was like, uh, he said, I want to put this as humbly as I can, but I ain't no $120 player. Got him. So, uh, I mean, if he found out I bought his original KDs for 50 bucks 10, 12 years ago or whenever it was, uh, he probably wouldn't be too happy. He'd be like, I ain't no $50 player. Come on now. But the reason I'm sad is because they're starting to come apart. And I had to repair, retire another pair of Jordans last fall. I think it's time to retire these. Uh, the sole is starting to to come apart, and uh, it's probably just going to be too much work to to fix them than it's worth. I might go out and get the new KDs. In the, at Ross. At Ross. If they have the ones with the Warriors blue and gold, because those, those, those look pretty sick. A little does the audience know, this episode is sponsored by Ross. All that was a was an advertisement for Plug them. For Ross. We might get in trouble <laughs> if we say that we're sponsored by somebody that doesn't actually sponsor us. Yeah, they don't but sponsor us. I, don't, I doubt any executives for Ross are but listening to us. But they sponsor Colin's feet. They, <laughs> no, I sponsor my feet because I pay them for the privilege of wearing whatever shoes is on the rack at Ross. Okay. You know? And so, uh, anyway, thanks, Ross. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks for all you do. Uh, should we get into it here, Brett? Yeah, let's get into it. All right. This is episode, what are we on now? 19. 19. Golly, Pete, we are almost at 20 whole episodes. Yeah. And it was just 10 episodes ago. I said, I did some research and podcasts that make it past episode 10 are around to stay. And yeah. look at us. We're almost double. Almost double that. I remember, I remember that uh, because we had at that time looked back and said, it seems like just yesterday we did uh, five episode five, and we had already doubled that. We were in double digits, and now we're double that. We're almost at, well, almost double that. We're almost at 20, but, I mean, we record these in chunks, so we, yeah. we, we make up large numbers at, at a time. Uh, but anyway, this is episode 19. Um, I flipped, not between us last time, but I flipped between Jason and Jake, our yeah. two listeners, who uh, thank you guys again for sending in your comments. And so, Brett, I think it's your turn to flip it. Wait, but you didn't get a call. Oh, that's okay. I don't need to call. All right. Well, you know you what I'm call, gonna call. You, yeah. So, what are you gonna call? I'm gonna say tails. Okay. Here it goes. And it is tails. All right. All right. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and defer this one. All right. So you go ahead. Defer. You will. 
the last episode that we had, that was a traditional episode, so two episodes ago, I left off by saying that I was going to talk about this concept of excellence whenever it comes to our churches. And uh, what I meant by that was that that some churches hold doing everything excellent in very high esteem. They want to be the best, they want to have the best, and they want to do the best that they can with everything that they do. And so that's what I mean whenever I'm talking about excellence. And I think this is just some kind of subjective feeling that I have, that this is a divider of churches, this idea of excellency. And I don't think that people would consciously know that. But I do think that this is a divider of churches, not meaning one local body of churches, a, a church body splits in and of itself. I'm saying like this church versus another church, the way that they perceive one another. And I think a lot of times churches that have strong feelings about this, whether they realize it or not, come down on extreme sides of it where you have some churches that say that they want to be as excellent as they can and they know exactly what they want the audience, uh, their congregation to experience, and they want to make sure that every time it looks the exact same and they want it to be very well done. Happens on one side. And then on the complete opposite side, there's almost this backlash towards that. There's an animosity towards other churches that are like that from churches that are like, well, we're going to be really genuine and we're just going to do what we do. And, and they don't put a lot of emphasis on doing things well, right? They're just going to let the, the spirit go, and there we go. So I think there is division among churches, not that churches are divided over it. And I think uh, I have some observations about this idea of excellency in churches, about doing things with excellence. And I have two main observations, and that is that whenever we think about being excellent— in our church services, or not being excellent in our church services, we are giving too much attention and too much weight to the Sunday morning worship experience. Or on the opposite side, we aren't giving enough weight to the Sunday morning worship experience. The churches that are on this uh, so-called pursuit of excellence, they put so much emphasis on what happens on a Sunday morning that whenever one thing goes wrong, they might be upset about it because this one thing is just so important. And if we don't get it right, then someone may not come to Christ or someone may not, probably more likely in this regard is, well, someone's not going to come back next week now. You know, we didn't, we didn't hit that transition between the, the, between the songs. And now everyone had that, those five seconds of awkward pause and, you know, they might not come back next week now. We put so much weight on the Sunday morning experience that that I think is uh, unbiblical, that church isn't just about Sunday morning experience. It's about the rest of the week. On the other hand, people that don't care about doing things well during the Sunday morning experience maybe don't give enough weight to the worship gathering because Sunday morning is, in most churches, that one day where and that one time that the whole church comes together to worship and to study and to hear the proclaimed word of God together. And that should be a very important time in the in the week of the local church, in the week of a church member, right? So it is a very important time, but it's not the ultimate time. 
And so coming down on the opposite sides of whether we're doing things excellent or not, I think is very telling about how we feel and what we believe about a Sunday morning service. The second observation I have about this is that whenever there is high expectations of what's going to happen, high expectations for excellence on a, on a Sunday morning or the rest of the week, that it minimizes the gifts of the people that are in the room, that there's a set expectation about what has to happen and what is going to happen and what it's going to look like. And there's not a lot of room for the people that are coming into your church to grow in to the gifts that they've been given. On the opposite side, it's the exact same thing, that whenever excellence and whenever doing things well uh, in the context of the local church is not important, and we're just kind of going along with things, and it is what it is, you are also minimizing the gifts of the people that are there because you're not encouraging people to be uh, and grow into the gifts that God has given them. You're, everyone's just okay with just sitting idle where they are. And so I think they share in this intrinsic understanding that the gifts of the people that are in the pews are not that important, whether they go for high excellence or they don't. And so the direction that I think we should go has to do with this gifting that God has given people. So I want to go to 1 Peter 4.10, 1 Peter 4.10. Okay, so Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10, This is 10 and 11. Just as each one of you has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so what Peter is telling us here is that just as each one has received a gift, everyone has received a gift from the Spirit. We use it to serve others. Well, whenever we place expectations on our church services, we do it before we even really know. Like we have an idea of let's say we're going to start a church and we want to go for high excellence. We're coming up with what excellence means before we even know what the gifts are of the people that are going to be a part of this church, that are going to be a part of this local body. And I think we need to reverse the order. We need to see the gifts that God is giving these people and see the gifts of the people that God is giving to this local this local body and come up with what excellence means with this group of people. Put the right people in the right places to use the gifts that they're given. And so what happens is then excellence is not just this thing that we're trying to attain, but excellence is this worship, this giving back to God, the gifts that have already been given to this local church through their people. And at that point, I think the people that rail against this, everything has to be perfect. Well, not everything has to be perfect, but everything is going to be as good as the growth that is happening in the gifts that God has given people. And so I think we need to start with the people and the gifts that God has given them in our local churches and not begin with some type of expectation for this is what church has to look like and we want to be excellent at doing this system 
but instead we want to be excellent in growing his people. And in that way, we can give God glory back, just like uh, what Peter was saying. Grow the gifts that are in people, not grow people for what you think has to be church. All right. So uh, early on in your thesis, you were talking about excellence, and I, I really wanted you to define uh, what being excellent or, or, or having excellence in a church um, setting, uh, how would you define that? And then you kind of got to it at the end of what you were saying, that right now, the way that the, the church sort of system is set up is uh, we, we say, this is our organization, this is the goals that we have, this is what we want to do. And we need to be excellent at these, and we need people to fit into that. Uh, but what you're saying is the biblical definition or model of excellence uh, uh, in in the church structure is the exact reverse of that, that we find out the people that are called to follow Jesus. Uh, we, we, we disciple them, we meet them, we find out what their gifts are, and then we uh, turn around and help them become excellent at that. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I do. I think that's an accurate uh, synopsis of kind of what I'm approaching this. And it's not that we help people become excellent, but it's that all of the, all of the people bringing their different gifts then starts to turn the church into um, an excellent. Uh, like the the service is becoming excellent to the glory of God. Okay. Now, I kind of want to propose something to you here, which I'm actually going to talk about a little bit more um, coming up in a couple episodes here. Uh, but I, I think part of what feeds this, um, this problem is the way that planting a new church, um, the way that that process happens um, is typically taught and practiced, which in the United States is essentially uh, you, you go into a new city or uh, you say we want a new church in this city, you rent a facility, um, whether that's you know a, a church, a middle school, a whatever, you rent some type of facility or you buy a facility if you have the means. You do a marketing campaign, direct marketing, whatever, and then you start having Sunday service. Um, the, the biblical model of planting churches, like if you look at what Paul and Barnabas did when they went around from city to city, they never did that. They did not do it that way. You never see them renting a facility, starting Sunday services. What they did is they went to where people were. They went to the marketplace, they went to the synagogue, and they just shared the gospel with people. And they focused on making followers of Jesus, making disciples. And what they ended up with was churches in that area because when disciples are made, they naturally want to meet together for prayer and for scripture reading and for, for worship and for giving back to God. Those are things that the Spirit leads us to once a person is reborn. So I think part of the problem is the way that setting up a new church is in our time, um, the, the way that that's practiced. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I do think the system that that uh, the the typical church planning system does lend itself to it's it's a little bit of the attractional nature. Church planners, and I'm not trying to lump all church planners together. I'm just going with the run of the mill, um, the average church planning. Where we're at in North Carolina, there's tons of church plants everywhere, and there needs to be more churches because there's more and more people. I digress. The way the 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 standard way of going about planning a church does make it so that there 
there's a def- there, it's like starting a business where you're defining expectations, uh, you're defining what an experience is going to be like, and then you launch, and people come there because perhaps their expectations may be aligned with your expectations. And so I think that really does, from the very beginning, build a box that people uh, then have to fit into where they might have spiritual gifts um, that that the Lord has gifted them and they don't even realize it because they stepped into a place that already had defined and rigid expectations for what was going to happen. All right. Uh, do you have any uh, concluding thoughts or Maybe any direction. Uh, I know you gave the verse from First uh, Peter, um, but any uh, sort of steps to to mitigate this this um, this issue. Yeah, and the last thing that I would say that I didn't really get to touch on in the thesis very much was the second part of verse ten. Uh, here's the first part: just as one, just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others. Here's the second part: as good stewards of the varied grace of God. That word varied, that that God works uh, through different people and in different ways, in varying ways, and all of it uh, is through uh, his grace. His grace takes so many different forms, and uh, I think the pursuit of excellence or the, the, the pendulum being swung the other way against excellence uh, is really minimizing the varied graces that God wants to give us through one another, that uh, we've ourselves elevated certain things, certain ways that things should be run. We elevate certain spiritual gifts among uh, above others, and what we're doing is we're really cutting the legs uh, underneath the varied grace that God wants to be able to give us. Just kind of like what we talked about in the last episode, I think I think I made the reference to Francis Chan and his book, Letters to the Church. One of the things he said in there, which I think kind of summarizes not only this episode, but just about everything we've been talking about in this podcast, is God set up the church to be so much more than what the majority of us have experienced in Western Christianity. Mm-hmm. Just because it's the majority of what, of us, what most of us have experienced in the United States, that doesn't mean that that is the end-all, be-all of what God intended for the church. Yeah. And then I have one last thing. I think that by doing that, by cutting God's legs underneath them, we actually we cut the legs underneath us a lot of times by selling ourselves short. Like, you know, we, we feel like we have to pay a lot of money to be able to do this one thing whenever God wants to be able to give us something so much richer and be able to use that money in a, in a certain other way. But um, I digress. All right. So what do you have for us today, Colin? All right, so today I want to delve a little bit deeper into one of the subjects that we've covered before. But first, let me just say that in the secular world, obscurity corrodes. And in exactly the same way, obscurity corrodes in the church as well. Now, an example in the secular world is the pension plan that members of the United States Congress receive. Years ago, Congress blessed themselves with an exorbitant pension plan, which pays them 80% of their final salary when they retire from public office. This equates to an average lifelong pension benefit of $139,000 per year. And by the way, that is entirely funded by the tax dollars paid by the American public. 
In contrast, the average citizen of this country will receive an average income of about $18,000 a year from Social Security and about another $30,000 from employee-sponsored retirement plans, which they primarily have to fund themselves. And even the few private citizens who are lucky enough to receive a pension will only see an average of about $10,000 a year from it if they are a middle-class citizen. What does this have to do with anything? The point is the ruling class, whomever and wherever, often provide themselves with extravagant benefits and perks, and they take better care of themselves than those that they are supposed to serve. So obscurity works well for them. And sadly, within Christ's church, there is a ruling class. Controllers, not the Lord Jesus, made it so. You see, most churches, whether traditional or contemporary, Protestant or Catholic, and everything in between, are divided into two groups which could be referred to as the ministerial and the layman, or the clergy and the laity, or the controllers and the controlled, or the titled and the non-titled, or the salaried and the unsalaried, or as I simply call them, the pulpit people and the pew people. Now, in many stores, there is a dark glass window whereby workers can see you, but you can't see them. Behind that glass, there's a lot of business happenings. There's decisions being made. There's people giving undetected oversight to shoppers and especially being alert for shoplifters. Well, metaphorically, that same glass separates pulpit people from pew people. And it's easy for pulpit people to monitor the lives of pew people, but it's very difficult for pew people to observe pulpit people. And this one-sided obscurity gives leverage to those in leadership. In any pastor-layman relationship, leverage naturally tilts to the pastor. The pastor is seen as significant, the layman comparatively insignificant. As a case in point, I once asked a friend of mine if he remembered playing badminton with me at a church picnic two years prior, which was the only time that we ever played. He did not. But when I asked him if he remembered playing volleyball with the pastor four years before, also a one-time occasion, he recalled it in vivid detail. This is because the pastor is viewed as the significant one. The layman goes to the pastor for guidance. The pastor does not come to him. The pastor is the understanding father. The layman is the son in need of validation. So esteem and trust flow in one direction. And because of the one-sided obscurity and because of the lopsided, unhealthy, and non-scriptural relationship between the pew people and the pulpit people, there is a constant danger of spiritual abuse. Shepherds can and often do fleece the naive sheep unnoticed. It is not uncommon, for instance, for a congregation of mostly five-figure wage earners to unknowingly pay the pulpit people a high six-figure salary. And not only that, there's unrealistic expectations placed upon those who are in leadership. The pulpit people are thought of as those who can do no wrong. We almost make an idol of them. It becomes a cult of personality. And please don't think I'm trying to pick on the pastors. Uh, I'm just trying to make observations about the way it is. Many of the people I know who are in roles of pastorship, they just wanted to do something for God with their lives, and they don't really get a lot of options for that. 
within the current church system. And they know that the expectations that are placed upon them, where the pew people view them as almost perfect, is not something that they can live up to. And if pew people were given special glasses to view the private lives of pulpit people, may I say to you that you would be surprised and even shocked to discover that really they are no more spiritual than us. Now, sure, you may have heard the occasional uh, pastor falling into adultery, but you probably have no idea just how frequently adultery actually occurs among the clergy, among pastors, worship pastors, and so on. And by the way, it's probably about equal to the laity. Emotional breakdown among pulpit people is also more common than most are aware, as is poor stewardship of finances, as is dysfunctional family life, divorce, addiction to drugs, alcohol, and pornography, as is jealousy, resentment, and unforgiveness, as is pride, unbelief, and competition for larger congregations. And this isn't just me speculating. There is data to back this up. A 2016 study by George Barna, which surveyed 5,000 evangelical pastors in the United States, reported that 25% of them had overspent or overdrafted their bank account more than twice in the past year. 40% had been divorced at least once. 54% had viewed internet pornography in the past year, and by the way, 30% had visited those sites in the past month. 78% felt pressured to have a perfect family. 80% felt discouraged or were dealing with serious depression. And perhaps the most shocking to me was this, 50% of the pastors surveyed were so discouraged that they said they would leave the ministry if they could, but they had no other way of making a living. Now, I had to let that one sink in for a moment. What this study said was that half of the pastors surveyed wanted to leave the ministry, at least wanted to at some point, but they felt that they had no marketable skills to support themselves in any other way. You see, those in leadership may be more knowledgeable about the Bible, but they're not necessarily more faithful to Christ than you or I. But in unison, they protect and fortify the way of the church system, which, may I say, is out of step with New Testament teachings. They stand behind this dark glass of obscurity, pretending that everything is better than it is. In a dispute, leadership often will put the welfare of fellow shepherds above that of the sheep, while the other shepherds say and do nothing. Now, again, to be fair, there are many pulpit people who are righteous men, unselfish, amazing, faithful people. But the exact same thing is true of pew people. So after some contemplation, I made a list of the top 20 people that I have encountered since I became a Christian around 13 years ago whose spirituality I most admired. Out of those 20, four are licensed pastors. So what is the issue with this obscurity? Well, for one, there are verses, chapters, and indeed whole books of the Bible frozen in fuzziness because pulpit people simply ignore them. When was the last time you heard, freely you have received, freely give, or heard a sermon from the minor prophets, or from Revelation, or Jude, or 3 John about the warnings against false teachers in the church? 
When was the last time you heard somebody who wasn't depending on the tithe for their salary teach about biblical tithing? But there has always been a remedy for dysfunctional church government. Transparency. Transparency versus obscurity. Obscurity assures abuse and hinders the Holy Spirit. That lessens the power of any church, which, and please get this, results in heaven being less populated. As any church's power is reduced, heaven is less populated. Now, transparency, on the other hand, assures little or no abuse and unfetters the Holy Spirit. That keeps the church strong, and please get this, results in heaven being more populated. Okay, so really I, the only questions I have are like, where do we go from here? Um, because I don't have anything that I can really attack about this. I mean, the most telling part of what you had to share was those uh, Barna survey responses. So like, where do we go from here in terms of us as laity, like me and you, we aren't pastors at a church, and uh, like, how do we start to bridge the gap between the pew people and the pulpit people, uh, not to like make us more important, but to like help them out because it's obvious that they are struggling um, just as much, if not more, than we are in certain ways. I mean, the depression thing was extremely telling. Yeah, I, I feel like that one is uh, a very difficult one to um, to come to terms with because the the pastor of a church is expected to be a comforter uh, for the people who are anxious or depressed or dealing with problems, and you know I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for us to come to a realization that they you know, often suffer and, and, and have to deal with the same things. Um, I think, so there's, there's, there's two sides that we're talking about here. There's the pulpit people and there's the pew people. For us, it's coming to a realization um, which for some, it, it's, it's really about shattering these perceptions that have been created in our minds about those who are in uh, you know, uh, career ministry, that they're just, you know, perfect people who can do no wrong, who are always um, upbeat and upgoing and just filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to start to realize that they're real people. They have the Holy Spirit in them, same as we do. They have their old nature, their, their sinful flesh, same as we do. And it's like, uh, you know, Paul says in, in Romans 7 about uh, kind of he, he wavers and there's this battle that goes on between the spirit and, and the flesh where the stuff he wants to do, he doesn't do because his flesh is pulling him into another direction. And, I, you know, for us, maybe it's, it's realizing that there's that struggle there too um, and just making friends with these people um, as though they're real people and that they're not, you know, above us in any way, which I think is... Sadly, part of the perception of, of many churchgoers is that, oh, the, the pastor is, you know, he's, he's up on this, this level up here and I'm down here. That's not the reality of it at all. Um, and for pastors, you know, it's like I talked about is transparency. 
I really appreciate it. Uh, we went to a church service this morning, and um, the pastor was was talking about his own sin struggles. You know, he was being very real about the the stuff that he struggled with, uh, struggled with first when they started the church, and um, you know, thinking that people were just going to be sitting there in the in the pews with their earbuds in, listening to Matt Chandler because he's a better preacher than him, and you know, <laughs> so being honest and upfront about their own struggles on a personal level, and also the church leadership being honest and open about the way the church is being run on uh, on a corporate level, the corporate body. Like, how many of you out there know how much your pastor's salary is? That, that should be public information. They, they publish the, uh, the amount that is brought in in tithes and offerings and where you are in the budget, but why do we not ever see the budget? I mean, why, why are the church bylaws often something we have to, to dig up? You know, if you're a member of the church, you should know how that church is governed and how that church operates. You should know the, the line items of the flow of finances. You may not care. Like, you might be a person who doesn't care, but if you are a person that cares, that information should be readily available to you. Um, it shouldn't be something that's hidden. It shouldn't be something that you have to go through uh, excruciating steps to, to get your hands on. That should just be public information because that's that's that transparency that I think is needed in order to um, to get rid of some of these some of these issues. And I think it's important to to note um, that it's this, this transparency that you're talking about, the removing the glass between the two. It's not so that we as laity can be like gotcha. Uh, it's not a gotcha moment. It's uh, we we want to you know protect our interest, of course, but we want to protect your interest because we know that things that are done in the dark are things that uh, you know mess with our soul, right? It, darkness and coverage uh, is the the playground of sin. And so transparency um, and removing this the divide between laity and and clergy is just as beneficial for lay, or for the clergy as it is for laity. It's it's a soul check on them to make sure that sin isn't isn't festering. Um, not only sin, but that things like depression um, that they need assist, they need help with, they need assistance with. Yeah, and I just want to kind of add one little nugget to tack on to the end of this is, you know, it's it's like you said, we don't want any of this transparency to be a gotcha. So if you are, maybe you're meeting with the pastor for coffee every Thursday afternoon or whatever it is, and you you are building a friendship, you're building a relationship, you're, you're starting to see him as a real person and not just the guy who stands in the pulpit on Sunday mornings. You, you know his family, you're getting to know him as a, an individual, if he confides something in you, like, I, I really struggle with pornography. I really struggle with depression. You know, I sometimes have suicidal thoughts. Whatever it is that he confides in you, if he confides in you, you know, just be there to be a, a fellow believer who's who's coming alongside him for his fight. Don't 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 say, oh, gotcha, and then go gossip about it with your your friends and be like, hey, guess what I know about the pastor? That's counterproductive. That takes us even further away 
than where we are now uh, from from trying to have this this transparency because then that's you're you're compounding his sin with your sin and I feel like that could be uh, you know a, an issue that may uh, may arise but just you know pray for that person continue to be friends with that person and think about you know if you were to confide in him some of the, for some of your struggles would you want him blabbing it all around the church leadership same same way um you know that street goes two ways so that that was one uh kind of where do we go from here the second one is uh i mean you've never been a pastor anywhere but you've you've been a part of uh, a few different churches if if someone if a young man were to come up to you and say you know i really want to do this for the for god like you mentioned in your thesis i want to go into formal pastoral ministry um, what are what are some warnings that you're going to give him what are some encouragements in light of uh, what we have discussed so one of the things I said in here is that when people want to do something with their lives for God, they they tend to have very few options within the church system. And I, I do think that that's true. Like if somebody wants to give their life to God, okay, do you want to be a pastor or do you want to be a worship pastor or do you want to be a youth pastor? You know, it's kind of like a very limited spectrum of what the church system has to offer. But I will say, if somebody wants to, uh, you know, give their life to, to God and, and do ministry with their life, I mean, that's how I feel. But I feel like God is calling me to, to teach, uh, teach his word in, a, in another way entirely. Like, I don't want to be a, a pastor of a church. I would rather just teach the word on, you know, a podcast or something like that while I continue, you know, in my, in my own career. That is a very viable option. So don't discount those things where God is opening up doors that are sort of outside the normal parameters of what the church system has to offer. You can do ministry in just about any way that you can think of, especially today with the type of media that we have. You know, start a YouTube channel, start a podcast. Make friends with the the person down the street. Have them over for dinner. Minister to them. So there's there's a, abundant ways that are sort of outside the norm. Um, that's the first thing I would say. The second thing is, if you do really feel that you're called to be to be a pastor, be transparent about some of the things that we've been talking about. You know, your own struggles. Don't get a big head, and don't get swept away by the church culture. We've talked a lot of things uh, in this podcast about, you know, how church culture functions and um, preaching style and and all kinds of different things about church government and everything like that. Don't get carried away in that without being faithful to examining the scriptures and following what is, is biblical. First, second, first and Second Timothy and Titus really give a lot of great instructions for a young uh, young person who's considering going into ministry. Uh, Paul has a lot of good instruction in there, but the the thing that stands out in my mind is Second uh, Timothy four, uh, 
Starting at verse 2, he says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Be faithful to teaching God's Word, because I know pastors who have gone, you know, to work for a certain church, maybe, and they're told, you you need to not use so much Bible in your sermons. You need to do it more this way, or you need to um, say this. Or you need to use this verse in a way that is actually not within the context of the the passage. Don't go for that. Resist that if you encounter it. Be faithful to teaching God's Word. And uh, that's, I mean, that's what I would say. So where are you going to go from here, Colin? So I've uh, I've been dealing a lot with church government mostly and uh, some of the history of kind of how we got here. Um, now, moving forward, I want to start to look at uh, some some modern church trends and uh, some things that discerning Christians maybe should be aware of going on into the future. Um, specifically, in the next couple episodes, I want to talk about the culture of church planting, which is one that we kind of touched on today, um, and also the, the language and culture of uh, vision casting. And I think that that's an interesting trend, um, and I think that the Scripture has a lot of interesting things to say about that. All right. And since you said trend, that was our key word. We're going to start wrapping it up for today. I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to the Double Check Podcast. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send those in. You can send in uh, some voice recordings if you want to be featured on an episode. Go ahead and send that to doublecheckpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and on any of the major podcast listening apps if you are tuning in. Uh, and also shop at Ross because they have great shoes. You can find a pair of J's over there for about 50 bucks. You just got to pick through, find the right size, find one you like. They're not a sponsor, though. Not a sponsor, but if you do want to sponsor, email us at doublecheckpodcast at gmail.com. You have any final closing thoughts, Colin? No. Uh, have a great, have a great week. Yep. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.